Mindfulness Mode, Episode 3. Keep trying, don't quit. Keep trying, don't quit. There's always another way. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host, Bruce Langford. On Mindfulness Mode, we talk about how people from all walks of life have discovered mindfulness and how it's impacted their lives to help them become more calm, focused, and happy. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I want to challenge you today. If you know anyone whose life would be improved with mindfulness, to share this podcast with them. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. It's a tremendous pleasure to introduce my guest today, PJ Dixon. PJ, are you in mindfulness mode? You know it, baby. All right. PJ has spent virtually his entire life living by Henry Ford's philosophy. If you think you can, or if you think you can't, you're right. Despite being diagnosed with a rare form of muscular dystrophy that was expected to take his life by age seven, PJ was encouraged to experience life to the fullest and do anything and everything he wanted. Even though he's disabled, that attitude resulted in him becoming a snow skier, skydiver, amateur watercolorist, former wheelchair athlete, 10th degree black belt, women's self-defense instructor, international traveler, published author, and motivational speaker. PJ is also a self-professed advocate of love. One of PJ's recent programs is called Engaged in One Year, and it's for single professional women hoping to find and attract the man of their dreams. PJ, tell us about your life right now. What are you working on at this time? You know, what I'm working on right now is something I'm really, really excited about. And it's something that's been coming through me for quite a while called learning to love. And it's a little bit different than the engaged to one year. Learning to love is working directly with people who really need and want to learn to love their life and love themselves. Because what I found is that there's a lot of people in the world, including myself at one point in time, who didn't, who don't like themselves and don't even understand what it means to love themselves. And so I'm currently working with some clients on that project because that is where my heart really truly is, helping people to learn to love themselves, learn to love their life, and then that profoundly gives them enough love to be able to love other people freely. Yeah, I certainly identify that as a as a problem. So many people that I work with, people that I coach or, or students I've helped with anti-bullying, it seems like they just are struggling and they don't understand that whole piece of loving yourself. Now, everyone has a life path that takes them in interesting directions, that's for sure. But what inspired you, PJ, to become motivated to get into the practice of mindfulness? You know, um, when I was a kid, my grandparents lived in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, And they lived in Japan for almost 10 years. And so we got a lot of things from Japan, you know, books and old stories and um, toys and things like that. And so I've always had an interest in Japan. And then as I got, you know, like nine, 10 years old, I wanted to join martial arts. And we got some things from Japan that just reminded me or, you know, kind of introduced me a little bit to like samurai and ninja culture. I don't even remember what it was. But mm-hmm. as I got a little bit older and I started to train in martial arts when I became I got in college and I started to train in martial arts, um, part of the martial arts is meditation and that just resonated with me. And in fact, you know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, even before that, my sister, I didn't like to read in, in school. Mm-hmm. I could read. I just didn't like to read. And so I was 19 and I came back from college my first year. And my sister said, here, read this book. 
And I said, and it was uh, Siddhartha by Herman Hess. Okay, Siddhartha is about the Buddha. Um, and so um, she said, read this. And I said, Carrie, you know, I don't like to read. And she said, read this. And I said, Carrie, you know, I don't like to read. And she said, read this. Because she was an <laughs> avid reader. Like right. she literally could read and I could sit beside her and talk to her and she would not hear me. It's an amazing skill. I wish that I had that skill. She said, read this. And I said, all right, fine. So when I read Herman Hesse's book called Siddhartha about um, um, Buddha, as I read it, I was like, oh, my God, this is exactly like I believe. This is how I believe. This is exactly like I believe. I had no clue that any of that even existed. I thought that I was just some you know, weird guy that had this, these beliefs and um, spiritual experiences that nobody else understood. So right. at 19, I started to meditate. And that's when I really started to become introduced to mindfulness and stillness. And there's, you know, Henry, um, not Henry Ford, um, Einstein said, nothing moves, nothing changes until something moves, right? I don't know if, you, if you've heard that before. Nothing changes that, yeah. until something moves. And that is great for the physical world. But for the spiritual world, what I like to say is nothing changes until you become still. When you can become deeply and profoundly still, everything changes. And that's what mindfulness is about. I started my mindfulness training in 19, and it just became more included in my everyday life and practice when I started training martial arts. And then I moved to Tucson to study with some spiritual teachers out here. And in that process, mindfulness and meditation became a regular everyday practice for me. So interesting. What was your life like as a child with your specific challenges? And, and what, what was it like getting through that when you were, say, 8, 10 years old? You know, it's an, it's an interesting question because I do have a very rare form of muscular dystrophy. So rare that when I was in the eighth grade, there were 25 people in the world that had what I have. And I say had what I have because the doctors gave me a life expectancy of seven years. They said, if you told my, to my mom, they said, if you send your son to school, he'll be dead by second grade. And she looked at me and she said, and I was four, and she said, it's his life. And if he wants to go to school, he gets to make that decision. Mm-hmm. And if he dies, he dies with friends. And so as a four or five-year-old, I got to make the decision to go to, my, to, go to school and make decisions for my own life because that's the kind of mother that I had. She was amazing. Still is amazing, actually. In mm-hmm. fact, I just got off the phone with her this morning, was in tears saying, oh, I love you and I miss you, you know, and I'm not like a mama's boy. I just really love her. I just really respect right. her. And uh, so it's just funny. Um, so at nine and 10 years old, this is a great story. I love this story. Um, I would be getting dressed and I put on my little pants and my little leg braces and my little shoes and I put on my little shirt. And, mm-hmm. you know, then I yelled at my mom. I say, OK, mom, I'm ready for you to please come help me get buttoned and zipped. And she would yell back from her bedroom, okay, but I'm busy. You keep trying. And I would be like, okay. You know, and um, well, I'm like, I'm trying to like snap my pants because this was before buttons, you know, well, maybe not before shirt buttons, but before we put buttons on pants, I guess. And so I'd be like laying on my back, rolling back and forth and pushing really hard with both of my thumbs, trying to squeeze the uh, the button or the snap shut and, you know, rolling and rolling and twisting just because I was, I was weak. And so I was trying to find a good angle to, you know, to snap my pants. And so finally they would snap and, um, whew, oh, you know, I take a <laughs> breath and um, it's so hard. And then I would, I look at my thumbs and because they hurt and they'd have these red divots, you know, little like pushed yeah. in indented red marks from pushing so hard. And 
I would suck my little thumb a little bit to suck that divot back out. And <laughs> then my mom had uh, put these, she was really smart, right? She put uh-huh. these rings on the end of my zippers and zippers almost always have like a little hole on the end. Yes. And so she would stick this ring through and, and clamp it shut so I could stick my finger through and pull my zipper up. Right. So that process would take me about 10 minutes. And while I was sitting there struggling and fighting and, you know, doing everything I could just to get buttoned and zipped and tucked in, my mom would be sitting in her bedroom crying because she wanted to come and help me, Bruce. Oh, man. She knew that if she came to help me, I would only remain dependent upon her. And at this point, I'd already lived two or three years longer than I was expected to. Mm -hmm. And her feeling was if he's going to live longer, I want him to be as independent and have the most normal possible life that he can have. That's how I was raised. After 10 minutes, she'd dry her eyes from crying. She'd blow her nose. She'd grab the door handle, take a breath, open the door, and literally walk two steps across the hallway into the doorway of my room. And she would say, oh, you don't need my help. You got it all by yourself. And I'd say, <laughs> I can do it myself, Mommy. And she'd walk away. Every morning, apparently, Bruce, I wasn't very smart because this <laughs> happened every day for like two years. Before I realized, oh, I can just play and she'll just help me anyway after 10 minutes. (laughs) So um, that's how I was raised, Bruce. I was raised by an amazing mom who loved me enough to make me try. And I recently saw a study that said kids that grow up to be the most successful young adults were the kids that parents praised them for trying more so than ever praising them for doing a good job. That's that's awesome. And, you know, I was just going to ask when you were talking about how intelligent your mother was and and how amazing she was at bringing you up, what gave her what it took to empower you, do you think? Wow, that's a great question. You know, I don't know. I can tell you that I have chills running up my spine, you know, um, just thinking about that. She is just really courageous. She's not a quitter. She loves deeply and truly. And I think she just loved me enough that she knew that if she ever, you know, passed away before I did, that she wanted to give me everything that I could to be able to survive, you know? And so I think it just came down to her willingness to suffer, knowing that I was suffering, but the suffering that I was doing was going to teach me not to quit also. Had my grandmother been my mom, I would probably not have made it till 11 or 12 years old because she wouldn't have sent me to school. Mm-hmm. She would have kept me, you know, basically bed bound. Um, and I say that and that, you know, I say that knowing that she probably won't listen to this because I would never want to hurt her. But I know that my grandmother is the kind of person who is scared and worried and um, everything is falling apart and the sky is falling and um, she doesn't accept anybody's advice And so my mom might have seen some of that as she was growing up. Plus, my grandfather was in the military. And so my mom might have also experienced um, some of that strength that um, she might have gotten from my grandfather. Um, And you know what? The other thing is, while I'm talking it out loud um, and just thinking about this, is that um, since my grandfather was in the military, they moved all the time. Mm -hmm. And so it made my mom probably fiercely independent. um, And she's also the firstborn. So I would say a combination of being firstborn, being independent, having to reach out and meet new people all the time, every time they moved, um, having a military father and not wanting to um, be afraid of everything like my grandmother 
Um, and then, you know, just the natural love of a mother for her child. I would say she said to herself, I'm not going to let him, you know, I'm not going to baby him. I'm going to let him try to live the most normal life he can as a young man or as a boy, right. you know? And so I just, I really respect her. Bruce, I would never have made it. I'm 46, bro. Like literally, I've lived 39 years longer than I was supposed to. Unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. I live by myself. I have somebody who comes in and helps me in the morning for about a half an hour, 45 minutes, you know, and that's it. Like, that's it. Of course, my friends drive me around, but there's also other uh, methods of transportation down here. I live in a house that's, you know, that's, I have to climb 17 inches to get into it. I don't even have a ramp yet. You know, um, that's the kind of life that I live. I jump out of planes. Um, I do indoor skydiving. Um, I'm a snow skier. Um, I've been a water skier, although I'm not a very good water skier. Apparently, you're supposed to ski on top of the water. <laughs> I ski under the water. Um, so, you know, I'm just an adventure seeker, man. I climb in the Grand Canyon with my friends. Um, that's just who I am. Like, I can't imagine living any other life. And it all goes back to my mom saying, if you think you can, or you think you can't, you're right. I love it. Love it. And while we're on this topic, I'm thinking about confidence because talking about all these incredible sports and incredible things you've done, can you explain to Mindful Tribe, how has mindfulness helped you become more confident? Fear comes from thinking about the past, mm -hmm. worrying about the past, or actually probably ruminating about the past is a better way to say that going over and going over and going over it again, and then um, worrying about the future. But mindfulness is all about present, right? And mm -hmm. so confidence comes when you live in the present moment. Because when you live in the present moment, you're not lying to yourself about what is. You're accepting what is in the present moment. Also, mindfulness is recognizing that when you are having those days where your mind, your subconscious mind is speaking negative to you, What's actually going on is that your subconscious mind is trying to help you re, uh, resolve some issues. And if you take the time to have that conversation with your subconscious mind, then you start to resolve the issues of I'm not good enough. I'm unworthy. I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not kind enough. When the real truth is you're probably gorgeous, intelligent, loving, kind, compassionate. You're probably an amazing human being. But that subconscious mind is rehashing all that old crap from your childhood. So by becoming mindful, and I become mindful in a multitude of ways. One is meditation. I have several different types of meditation I do. Another is just um, literally being very attentive to what my, my mental chatter is. So I'm very aware of what's going on. So the moment it starts to go down a negative path, I bring it back to the present moment. And so what happens is when you don't let it go down that negative path, you don't compromise your integrity. If you don't compromise your integrity, you don't start to lose self-confidence. You maintain a level of confidence because you look at yourself truly and say, no, this is actually who I am. That person might not have liked me. I might be in a bit of a disagreement with that person. We might not see eye to eye. All those things could really beat down our level of self-confidence. But there's a piece that follows that, which says, even though all of those things are breaking down, pause, I know who I am. I know who my heart is. I know what I intended when I said that. I know I don't intend to hurt people. I know that even though somebody said that I'm not good enough, I know that I try really, really hard to 
help other people, that mindfulness is about being aware of what the subconscious mind is attempting to do in that moment and getting control of it with your conscious mind. And so I do another activity that I call Namaste Talks. And a lot of people talk to themselves in the mirror, um, but I take it to a little bit different level maybe where I talk to myself and I play both the subconscious mind and the conscious mind and I get really close to the mirror within like a couple of inches because I want to see if my my face twitches, if my eye like looks away, am I trying to lie to myself? Like I want to know the real truth about what's going on. And then the next level for me is that I open up in that level of mindfulness and prayer and I don't just have a conversation between my subconscious mind and my conscious mind. I make an effort to have prayer a conversation between my conscious mind and my deeply conscious mind, meaning this, the part of me that's soulful, the part of me that is divine, the part of me that is God, because namaste means the divine in me recognizes the divine in you. So I immediately enter the mirror and recognize that there is divinity within me or I wouldn't be alive. In the moment that, you know, that divinity leaves us is when the body dies. And so I take the time literally to talk to myself probably once or twice a week just to check in, make sure that I'm okay. If I've got some problems, let's talk it through and figure it out. And I make an effort to let it be not just my subconscious mind, but the deeper part of my soul, my heart, uh, my deeper consciousness, that divine part. Thank you. Thank you, PJ. I'm wondering, you've mentioned part of this. You've partly answered this question, but I'm wondering if there was ever a time where you really thought to yourself, oh, this whole meditation, this whole mindfulness thing, this is not working for me. Do you have a story that we can identify with where you may have had a time like that? Yeah, you know what's interesting? You know, I said that I started meditating at 19, but carrying that through when you're a 19-year-old kid, um, I did it a little bit in college, but I would do it like during the summer when I had time or when I didn't have anything else to do and I remember about it. Um, and so, and I wasn't consistent at that point. And so from seventh and eighth grade on, I really didn't like myself. K through six was great. I love myself. Um, I always had little girlfriends, you know, I didn't care about my disability. Puberty hits at seventh and eighth grade and all of a sudden you get smacked in the face or in the heart with a board that just says you suck and you are, you're useless and nobody likes you and no girls are ever going to like you and you're disabled and you know, you're handicapped. And so man, Bruce, like even though people on the outside saw kindness and I loved other people, I didn't like myself. So, and that was, that started in seventh and eighth grade. So once I started meditating at 19, I started to like myself more. Plus I'd really kind of grown out of the puberty. Um, but I still had some, you know, some depression, not really depression, like where anybody would know, but like, Mm-hmm. I just didn't like myself. I just didn't mm-hmm. want to be disabled, you know, even though I had accomplished so much and was playing wheelchair sports and, and all that, there was just a part of me that really, really wished that I wasn't disabled. Um, and so when I moved to Tucson in 1997, um, I was asked by my teacher, one of my spiritual teachers to go home that night and pray because I had just moved to Tucson like several days earlier. And she said, okay, just Go home tonight and pray. And when you pray tonight, just after you pray, ask God to give you some direction um, so that you know where you're, where you're going in your life. 
and then just listen. And I said, yeah, okay, okay, I can do that. You know, because listening was meditation and prayer is talk. And so that's easy for me to do. And so I went home, um, not to my home, but to a friend of mine's home that I was staying in at the time. And I sat in cross-legged on the floor, on the concrete floor. um, And I just prayed and I said, God, I believe I'm supposed to be in Tucson. I don't know why. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. But please give me some guidance and tell me where you want me to go and what you want me to do. And I'll do it. And then I got still, Bruce. I just got quiet. I went into meditation. I opened up and became profoundly still. And when I opened up and hit that stillness, this pillar of golden light came through the ceiling. And you don't have to believe me, but I'm telling you the truth. Came through the ceiling, hit me in the top of the head, filled my body with light and just like energy and light and love. And I heard one word and the word was love. And in that moment, I knew what I was supposed to do. I knew I was supposed to love other people. And so I thought, okay, well, I can do that. But like, I don't know what job I'm supposed to get, but I can love other people. And I've been loving other people my whole life. And so this is easy. Like, God just wants me to continue to love. Well, seven months later, six, seven, eight months later, it was in April. That was October. This was April. In April of 1998, I was walking south on the um, east side of traffic. So I had traffic coming towards me as I was walking. I was on the sidewalk. And as I walked across the exit of a Boston market, I saw this big Toyota, black Toyota SUV. And I looked at oncoming traffic and I thought, there's, surely there's no way this guy's going to come out into traffic. And he was looking to his left and I was on his right side. He was looking at oncoming traffic and I was walking towards the traffic. So he didn't see me. I walked out in front of him and Bruce, he gunned it. He stepped on the gas and he hit me on my left side, threw me out into traffic, oncoming traffic, three lanes of oncoming traffic. He rolled my wheelchair, my hot pink wheelchair, underneath (laughs) the last hot pink wheelchair I ever had, rolled my hot pink wheelchair underneath his SUV. I had time enough to say this prayer. I said, God, whatever happens, please don't let him roll over my pelvis. And the driver's side wheel came to rest leaning against my pelvis. If he'd rolled another inch or two, he literally would have crushed my pelvis. And Bruce, I weigh like 80 pounds. He probably would have killed me because of the internal injuries. Luckily, there's an emergency medical team inside the Boston market that saw it, ran out, took care of me, ran me across the street to the hospital, literally across the street to the hospital. I wasn't meant to die that night. So for the next four months, I suffered excruciating pain. I had I couldn't sit very well. I couldn't lay down very well. I couldn't find a good uh, comfortable position. I refused to take any kind of medication. Eventually, like four months in, I think, the physical therapist said this. He said, PJ, I don't know what's wrong. He said, there's one last thing that I think it could be. And I've checked with all of my mentors and all of my teachers. And they said, the last thing that they could think of is that maybe your pelvis bone got knocked out of place. And so he palpated my pelvic bone and he realized, he's like, yep, that's what it is. It's out of place. He said, this is going to hurt. And he laid me sideways on the table and he said, hold on, buddy, because this is going to hurt. And he said, I'm going to grab your pelvis bone and I'm going to pop it back into place. And I said, okay. And so I breathed a little bit, right? And I said, okay, when you're ready, I said, I'm ready. And he popped it back into place and I did everything I could to get away from the pain. I like, I was crawling on my side, like trying to get away from him and pop. Pop that sucker back in place. I was like, ah! <laughs> ah! I can just feel it. Oh, oh, God. Oh, oh. 
And Bruce, it was the most amazing relief that I had ever, and release that I had ever felt in my entire life. And I'd felt some amazing things in meditation, but to have pain immediately removed from you, oh, it's like right now I can breathe just thinking about it. And so when he popped that back into place over the next couple days, couple weeks, couple months, what I realized was that message of love that I got seven or eight or 10 months earlier was not about loving other people. It was about learning to love myself. And the way I realized that was when the pain was gone, I started to appreciate the life that I was given back. Right. I was so filled with gratitude and gratefulness and thankfulness. Yeah. Being grateful is such a, such an important part of all our lives, isn't it? It is. It's crucial. And literally it's appreciation that wells up that becomes gratitude and gratefulness that then literally becomes love in that moment of such profound gratefulness. I literally, in that moment, learned to love myself, to learn to love what I had, to learn to love what um, I was given and not resist it, but instead learned to appreciate it in that moment. So for me, um, you asked about, you know, mindfulness Mm -hmm. and about how it's, was there ever a time when mindfulness didn't work? Sure, it didn't work when I didn't work it. You know, it didn't work when I was only toying with it and playing with it and I wasn't actually dedicating my life to mindfulness, meaning meditating and then carrying that mindfulness and that that consciousness of the present moment with me in the present moment, even though I wasn't literally in meditation in that moment. And the way you do that is you become aware. You literally it's a four step process. My learning to love is a four step process, which answers your question right now. You become open and receptive which means you learn to silence or still that mental chatter. Once you become open and receptive, you become immediately aware of all that your senses are taking in. Sight, smell, feeling, touch, temperature, um, emotions. You become immediately aware. When you become aware, you start to appreciate. When you start to appreciate, and appreciate doesn't mean that you like something necessarily. I can appreciate the taste of green beans and recognize them and not like them. So Mm -hmm. I can appreciate the fact that I don't particularly care for green beans. You know, and then after appreciation is gratefulness and gratitude. And that gratitude naturally rolls over when you have so much gratitude, it becomes love. And so for me, the process of almost losing my life and living something worse than what I already had made me appreciate what I had. And so that's one of the reasons that despite my profound disability and my incredible weakness, I can't even lift my arms. For me to move my arms, I have to fling my body, transfer the energy from my body into my limb and let my limb fly out and land on what I want it to fly on or land on. And so yet I, because of that, um, well, not because of that, in spite of that, I'm still unwilling to use an electric wheelchair. I still push a manual wheelchair. I have a profound curvature in my spine that causes me to curve forward. So it's like I have this really big pot belly um, because my spine curves forward and then I curve it back so that my upper body from like lower ribs up is upright so um, I can look at people and talk to people. And that's how I reach my wheels. I reach my wheels not with my hands, but with my forearms. And so I literally have to like bend my back, lean over and to push my own wheelchair. But I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to change my body so that I don't quit. And I do that partially for myself and partially for other people. Because if I'm walking across the street and other people see me 
and they go, woo, man, at least my, my life ain't that bad. Mm -hmm. Right. And then maybe they start to appreciate their life, have a sense of gratitude, and maybe their day gets a little bit better. So I don't quit because if I quit Bruce, I give other people the right to quit. And I don't want to give other people the right to quit. So if I keep going and other people see that, oh, wow, that little dude keeps going. Okay. My life's not that bad. Then they start to appreciate their life and appreciation is a very early step in learning to love themselves. Yeah, I so, love your attitude, PJ. I just love it. And, you know, I know that you have so much to say about discipline. You've trained in martial arts for more than 25 years. What can you share with Mindful Tribe about how you continue being disciplined in your life with your mindfulness and what you do? You know, discipline comes from two perspectives. It comes from wanting something and it comes from not wanting something. And my discipline, I think, originally came from not liking my disability and not wanting to be seen as disabled and wanting desperately to be seen as able-bodied as I possibly could be. And so that drive that my mom gave me of teaching me to keep trying, keep trying, keep trying, bled over into not knowing how to quit. And not knowing how to quit is um, a great tool when you don't want to be seen as physically weak. You know, I'm a man. Bruce, I'm 46 years old. I'm a man. I want to be physically strong. Every mm-hmm. man out there wants to be strong. Right. I love that Tom Petty song that says, you can stand me up at the gates of hell and I won't back down. Um, yeah. And that's how I think most men want to see themselves. I weigh 80 pounds. I'm a little five foot one, five foot two dude in a manual wheelchair, skinny, so skinny. You can see the bones probably throughout my entire body. You see my arms, my legs, my rib cage, you know. Um, and despite that, um, I want to be strong. So I'm unwilling to quit. And in martial arts, if I get knocked down, I have people throw me back in my chair. There are times that I've been flipped over and cracked my skull on the ground in training. You know, there've been times that I've been knocked out of my chair and landed on my chest to knock the wind out of me. And my friends literally pick me up, throw me back in my wheelchair. Don't even let me catch my breath and punch me again. Why? Because that's real life. You know, we get knocked down and we got to get back up. And it comes from the way my mom raised me. Keep trying. Don't quit. Keep trying. Don't quit. There's always another way. Even though you don't see it right now, if you explore and become curious about things, curiosity is our best friend because curiosity will reveal hidden ways to get through things or new ideas to overcome. Discipline comes from wanting something so bad that you're unwilling to quit or not wanting to be seen so bad that you're unwilling to quit. Right. PJ, were you ever bullied? Do you have a story about bullying? You know, it's funny, Bruce. Um, I've lived an amazing life, and I have almost no stories about bullying. Seventh and eighth grade was a little bit rough. And seventh and eighth grade, there was a little bit of bullying that occurred, but it occurred mostly because I was in such angst in seventh and eighth grade. Uh My parents were going through terrible divorce. I was failing a couple of classes. Um, I couldn't walk in with my leg braces anymore. I kept falling. I was exhausted from fighting my own body. You know, in eighth grade, they threw me into an electric wheelchair. So once they threw me into an electric wheelchair, all of that, you know, um, finally hit it, uh, the head. And I was, you know, so I was struggling so much that I wasn't always really super nice to some of the other guys in school. And there's literally like three or four or five 
that I can probably honestly, probably three that I can think of right now that once we got into high school, we had absolutely no problems, absolutely no problems at all. And it was just teenage angst, man. It was just like seventh and eighth grade hormone dump, not knowing whether I'm coming or going or who I am or what a friend is. I mean, I, I not knowing how to be a friend, even though I, I did, you know, but that's the only time I was ever bullied. It was usually when they were responding to how ridiculous I was. But I'm really lucky, man. Despite my disability, I was never, ever bullied. Mm. Never. PJ, my next questions are part of the multi-mode round and just short 30-second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who is one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? My martial arts teacher in Japan, because he's not just about the martial arts, the physical martial arts. He's also about uh, the meditation. And even though he doesn't necessarily teach it, I know that he does it. I know that he's committed to it and I want to be like him. Excellent. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, PJ? When you're mindful, you're able to feel it um, as the emotion rises. When you become mindful, you realize that the emotion is based on your own ego and so your own attachments. And so whenever you're suffering, it's really easy to realize when it rises up to realize the suffering is my own doing. And so I seek out the origin or the attachment that I have and I handle that. And then the emotion changes. Tell us how breathing is a part of your mindfulness practice. Well, the word inspiration means to bring in spirit. And so I believe that I've created something for myself called one breath mushin. Mushin means no mind, where I've meditated for so long at this point that I can take one breath, allow that breath to be my focal point, because the human mind can only focus on one thing at a time. Whole nother conversation. The human mind can only focus on one thing at a time. So you breathe in, you focus all your attention on that. Pause, exhale, and then I'm centered again. If you could recommend a book on mindfulness, what would it be? I love the book called Shambhala, Sacred Path of the Warrior by Chogyung Trungpa. What advice would you give to a person who is new to mindfulness and would like to start using it in their life? I would say that if you are experiencing some difficulty with the mental chatter and you don't feel like you can actually stop the mental chatter, don't worry about the mental chatter. Instead, allow it to pass through. Just watch it. Just listen to it. Um, think about standing on a street and watching other cars go by you in front of you. And every car that goes by, you don't have to get in and ride in, which means that every time a thought goes by, you don't have to think about it and ride it out. You can literally just let it go and watch the next thought rise and go. So don't worry about becoming still yet. Just worry about learning to watch your subconscious mind speak. Start there. The next step is to have conversations with yourself in the mirror as the subconscious and the conscious mind. Third step is then to work on becoming still and silent in your mind. Excellent. Can you share an app which helps you to be more mindful? I don't really because I don't have a cell phone mm -hmm. um, because my fingers don't work. I don't have a mm -hmm. cell phone, so I don't actually use apps. I'm old school meditation. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess I don't have one. Sorry about that. No problem. Fair enough. Can I share another book, though, that I think is um, really great? Totally. The Unfettered Mind by Takuan Soho. The Unfettered Mind by Takuan Soho. The reason that it's so great is it literally talks about the space between thoughts. You're going to want to read it three or four times before you really start to get the depth of it. Well, we'll put that in our show notes, PJ, that extra book. That's great. Tell us how Mindful Tribe can contact you and learn more about what you do. Excellent. Mindful Tribe can contact me in one of two ways. 
they can either go to my motivational speaking site, pjswisdom.com. That's pjswisdom.com. Or they can go to engagedinoneyear.com. And that one is O-N-E, engagedinoneyear.com. PJ, it has been such a pleasure and a privilege to talk with you today. I've just learned so much myself, and I know here at Mindful Tribe, we've all learned so much from talking with you. Do you have one last thought or one last story you'd like to share with us? Let me share a thought with you. The thought is this. My definition of love is the willing exchange of oneself for oneness. Love is the willing exchange of oneself for oneness. Because anytime you actually love, what you're doing is you're letting go of yourself and you're actually connecting with the other person. And when you connect with the other person, by definition, you're becoming one with them. You are uniting with them in unity. And what I love is this concept of shalom in the Hebrew tradition. Shalom, everybody thinks, means peace. The P-E-A-C-E that everybody thinks shalom means is really talking about the P-E-A-C-E of being part of the original P-I-E-C-E when we were one. So shalom is a much deeper word that talks about uniting and becoming one again, just like my definition of love. Right. I like that explanation. That's fantastic. Thank you. PJ, it really has been such a great pleasure. You take care. Thank you so much, Mindful Mode people. Keep meditating and keep sharing that love with other people. You make the world a better place. Bye now. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. In appreciation, I'll mention you at the top of an upcoming show. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.